Welcome to the Storytellers Live podcast, where everyday women share stories of hope. I'm Robin, and Katie and Lindy and I are on Christmas vacation this week. And so we are bringing you one of your favorite stories of 2020 and one of ours as well, which is Sherry Silk. And we hope you love today's story. We are going to keep all of our discussion on there for you to hear if you missed it the first time. And then we will be back in the new year with new stories. Merry Christmas. Today, we have Sherry's story, which I'm super excited about. Sherry and her husband, Danny, have been friends of ours for years. My husband met Danny a while back. And so it's a story I actually heard her share about a year ago. Back before COVID, in a live setting, she shared this. And it was so, so powerful that in that moment, I said, will you please share this on our podcast? And it took a year, and that's funny how God's timing works, but we have no doubt that, that today is, mm-hmm. is the right, right time. That's right. Um, Sherry's story ultimately is about forgiveness and the power of forgiveness. If you have a relationship out there that you're struggling with, I think that her story is going to encourage you to realize the power of letting go and taking that forgiveness to another level will do for you spiritually. Mm-hmm. So here's Sherry. If you are looking for a winter Bible study, we have one for you. When God Shows Up is an eight-week podcast-based Bible study around eight of our stories. And you can get that at our website at storytellerslive.org. We have had a great response to the Bible study, and we know that it would benefit not only a small group, but you could do it personally. So go to our website today and order When God Shows Up. Well, thanks for... uh inviting me to share my story with you today and uh, I'm uh, I usually get vulnerable and I it's okay because I'm happy to to kind of open up my life and uh, so that somebody else might be encouraged and so I love the idea of our stories I might have a vulnerability hangover like Brene Brown says at the end but that's okay Lord always uses it so I think a little background for me is I'm 59 years old, and I grew up in a household when I was young of boys. So I have uh, six brothers, uh, three natural brothers and three stepbrothers. And my world as a young girl was not pink and roses, and it was not fluff and feathers. It was outdoor, tree climbing. We played army. If I didn't play army, I didn't play because that's what they were doing. You know, I, I've been shot by BB guns just to see how much it might hurt. One pump or two pumps or three pumps, whatever. Let's see what Sherry can take. So I br- had broken bones and stitches by the time I was one, six, twelve. I was always going to the doctor trying to keep up with these boys. Part of my story is, you know, my... Between my mom and dad and stepdad who raised me and Danny's, my husband's uh, mom and dad, there's 15 marriages. So by the time I was a young person, my mom had remarried. And so my stepfather came into my life when I was six. My natural parents, my mom and dad, divorced when I was one. And under very strange circumstances, my my mom was living, after 14 years of marriage, living in a very unhealthy, unhappy marriage. And she separated from my dad. And he he wouldn't leave her alone. And he came over one night drunk and raped my mom after she had separated from him. And I was conceived. So I was conceived in the most weird 
you know, circumstances. And my mom, and you know, back in those days, in the early 60s, she went back to live with him. She didn't have any options because she didn't have any job that would sustain her. And they lived in a really small town. And my my dad's dad, my grandfather, was a sheriff. So there was a lot of uh, just circumstances in her life that were really hard. So she went back to live with him, but it didn't last long. She couldn't take it. And she left uh, by the time I was one, she divorced him. My brothers tell stories of not having any food or having to, you know, survive my mom trying to work and pawn us kids off of any, to any relative that would take us so she could go to work. So when she was working for this, she got a job working for my stepdad is what happened. And she ended up marrying him when I was six. So he's the, he's really the only father figure in my life. My real father just kind of disappeared, never paid child support. And but out of all those circumstances, we we started on a trek of, you know, when Danny would say when his mom would remarry or be with a man, their, you know, their economic status would go up and they would live, you know, they they would have food and they would have you know, they would be able to do things. And then when there was no man in the house. And so that same thing happened to my mom when she married my stepdad. He was a businessman. But so we were a middle class family. But what people didn't couldn't see is that there was a lot of abuse in the home. And us being part of a community where my dad, my stepdad was, he was the president of Rotary, he was running for supervisor, he was a businessman. And, and so it we looked like a very healthy family. And so this by this time, because I was the young, one of the youngest, we ended up in a small town in Northern California. I was 12. And there's just it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And some defining moments in my life were, you know, I had a car and I wanted to do my own thing as a teenager. And, and I was so disrespectful. I, I would have to say, you know, my part of the story is my father was very abusive, my stepfather, and I just returned it. I mean, I grew up in a house full of boys, so I could dish it. It was survival. I wasn't, I wasn't treated like a princess. I was, you could either retreat or, you know, come out swinging. I absolutely came out swinging. And a lot of it was with my disrespect. And so we had this kind of relationship. So I, you know, this part of the story is I wanted to do my own thing and he wanted me to come home. And so we got into this big argument in the middle of the street in this little downtown area in the middle of, you know, winter. So it was dark and it was raining and he wanted me to take him home and I didn't want to take him home. I wanted him to wait for my mom. We got in a fight and he just turned into this crazy madman and he started kicking and beating up my car. He just was out of control. His anger was out of control. And I was, I tried to leave and I tried to go around him and I couldn't and I would back up and go forward. I eventually just jumped out of my car and put it in neutral so it would roll backwards. And he chased the car instead of me. So I ended up in a foster home that weekend. And all of a sudden, the authorities that, that were around then were aware that this family was not doing so well on the inside as they looked on the outside. So I ended up in the juvenile judge's office at a, as a 16-year-old, 17 probably by then. And I sat down with the judge and he said, tell me about what's going on at home. And I had just had it. I'd had enough. And I 
my brothers kind of endured it and went away. They went in the army. One of my brothers went into to boot camp with broken ribs from a fight with my dad the night before he went to boot camp. So they just went away, but I just had had it. And I just sat there and told that judge everything I could remember as a young person. When my dad put his foot through the door, he punched his fist through the wall or kicked his way out of the house or slapped somebody across the face or kicked him across the room or cleared the table with the back of his hand. Those were just days occurrences, just living with a time bomb, basically. And I didn't realize it, but the judge was writing it all down. So when my parents came in, I hadn't seen my mom for several days, and she was crying and upset that I might not come home. And and at that point, I just wanted to go home because that's where my comfort zone was, my car, my friends, my life. I didn't want to be in a foster home. And so I sat there. My parents came in. My dad just looked stoic. My stepdad. When I say my dad, I mean my stepdad. So the judge read this list of everything I had said, and my dad sat in silence. And in my head, I had this hope, like, maybe this is going to really work, you know? Maybe he's going to listen. And, and, and then the judge looked at me and said, what do you, you want to do? And I said, I just want to go home. And my mom's crying, and he said, okay. And so I got in the car, and we drove away, and in just after silence, my dad said, who does that judge think he is? I helped put him in office, blah, 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 blah. There was no like connection. There was no, so that, that was kind of the normal life with, with my dad is he just, he just couldn't see his part in any of it. And so there were several times, you know, I tried to, you know, I got, I was really a wild child after that, you know, as a young person, I got saved when I was 21, which was an incredible, you know, turning point in my life. I, my brothers have all dealt with drugs and alcohol and in and out of jail and prison. And I avoided all that because I got saved at 21. If I had not met Jesus, <laughs> I would have been, I would have had children from multiple marriages. And, you know, I, I'm not, not saying that people don't make those choices and live through them, but they don't. They do add a you know circumstantial hardship that was avoidable, uh, possibly you know. And I know that there's there's victims out there of abuse, and I'm I was victimized for sure. I was super inappropriate things happened to me as a young person. I was not protected whatsoever. So I think I just learned that it was my job to protect myself. It's nobody's going to do it but me. Um. So when I when I met Jesus. All of a sudden, I was part of a community that loved and cared and honored each other and was calling out the gold and trying to... So I was so bizarre to me to, to all of a sudden be in a community that was, you know, for you and looking out for good things to happen in your life. And, and so it just really changed me. But my relationship with my dad was very... There was no more fighting anymore, and I was close to my mom, so we would see them all the time. So I get married, I have kids, all of that's going on. And there was a couple of times that I really tried to talk to him, but when I would kind of go after, remember this or that, he he just could never go there with me. He just could never find any kind of regret or any, he was not a believer, he was not serving the Lord or any of that. Um, my mom would go to church with me, and but he just couldn't get there. And so I, I, I just kind of got into a mode of this is just how it's going to be. You know, I'm going to keep my love on. I'm going to honor him. But there was a distance between us because he was just not a safe person. You never knew what he was going to say or do. Or, And, you know, we 
moving forward, my mom passed away of cancer when I was 33. And so all of a sudden, all my brothers never came home again. The only reason they ever came home was to see my mom. And so he is now completely by himself, no interaction with any of his own children, his kids, you know, his his natural kids, which were three, and my mom's kids just just never came around. So it was it was kind of up to me if I was going to try and restore some sort of relationship. So cruising along, we were we were living in in Reading and we were living in Weaverville and we decided to buy my parents' house. So my dad moved into his motorhome in the driveway. So we so now we're all, we're all together. So I, people say, "Oh, did you get a good deal on your house?" And I'm like, "Well, it came with a grumpy old man in the driveway." <laughs> and he lived with us for 15 years like that, which he he was an old sailor. He loved living and he could check in and out. But because he was in he had his own little house out there, I could still keep my distance, that safe distance. And one day, this you know, one of the t- big turning points was uh Danny was going fishing in Alaska. He was, we were going to go up and do a conference and then he was going to go on a fishing trip. And out of the blue, without talking to me, Danny decides to invite my dad with us. He said, uh, Sherry, you, he can fly up with you. And I'm like, what? If this is all happening in front of me and I can't do anything about it. It's like, I don't want to be, you know, I, ha- I, I realized these, you know, these little hints of what was going on inside of me were that safe distance I was putting that there because I didn't enjoy being around him. I didn't want him to touch me. I didn't want him, you know, I remember smells and things that happened to me as as a young person. It just, all of it would flush back in when he was close. And so now Danny's invited him on this trip that I'm now his host. So Danny, a few weeks later, whatever, we went up to Alaska, Danny went up to Alaska and then dad and I got on this plane and, and, he, I was in ministry, pastoring, all that stuff. And he really had no clue. I'm living, he's living in our driveway and really doesn't know what I would do all day when I would go to work. He just never really invested in my life. The conversation with him was usually about him. And he, you just, that's, that was life with him. And so we, on the way up there, I'm saying, hey, you, you, you're you here for the fishing, so you don't have to go to any meetings. You don't have to come to the meetings. You know, you can just, we got him a hotel room, and he's like, no, I'm going to go to the convention, he kept saying. I'm like, you don't have to go with me to church, and he's like, no, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. So I just, something inside me was just like, I just, this feels like my walls are being broken. He's coming into my world, and, and I'm very nicely trying to keep these boundaries up with him and he finally uh he went to every single meeting he he listened to me share and preach and uh Danny and everybody and he walked around telling everybody he was my dad and I people would say I met your dad he's really nice and like not thank you and on the inside I'm like no he's not really nice (laughs) he's not a nice person uh and so he just was so like proud. It was the first time I ever saw him kind of proud of me. It was the weirdest feeling. And so we, he went fishing with Danny and for days on a boat and had just had a blast. And then we, when we came home, 
he came in the next morning and he left me a, a card and he said, thank you so much for taking me on the fishing trip to Alaska. And my favorite part was the convention. He kept calling it a convention. <laughs> and something shifted. Like I, all of a sudden I had been living a certain life with him that I was needing to adjust now. And part of it was what I had done in the past, which was really helpful, was I, he was always failing as a father. You know, he was always doing something or saying something or, so I never got my father needs met from him. I would go, I'd have spiritual fathers that really poured into my life and, and my marriage and all of that. And so I just, the way, instead of being upset with him all the time, what I learned to do was just lower my expectations of him so that he wouldn't be in the doghouse all the time. And so that kind of helped over time um, just because I wasn't mad at him all the time. I didn't need, you know, anger, honestly, was is my drug of choice, you know. Hello, my name's Sherry Silk, and I'm a rageaholic. You know, I, I just used my anger to protect. That's what I learned in the environment that I grew up in. And so when I wasn't angry with him all the time, it was really starting to change our relationship. Then he went to Alaska, and when we came home, my dad, who had never gone to church, really never paid much attention to what I was doing, would get up every Sunday morning, drive to church, which we're already there because we were pastors, so we had to be there at like 8 in the morning. He would park in staff parking. You know, I had to tell the maintenance guys, it's okay, it's my dad. He would even park where there wasn't really a parking spot. It was kind of a half a parking spot, and he would find it every week and park there. And normally they would be trying to find whose truck this is. I'm like, it's my dad's. He'd walk down the middle aisle and sit in the front row. So this guy who never would go to church, never even interested in what we were doing in life, is sitting there. And as soon as the, the band would start, he'd start singing and he loved to sing on the front row and he'd raise his hands. And I would just be like, who is this guy? I just didn't know. People constantly say, I met your dad. He always talks about you. And I, it's just so confusing because I had protected myself with boundaries. And I realized, you know, I need to let him out of the box. I've been keeping him kind of in this safe distance, this spot where you're allowed to sort of live inside this little world over here because that's what I can control. And I've never let you out of the box because I'm so afraid you're going to hurt me or you're going to hurt. And I, it wasn't like I was going to physically hurt anyone anymore. He's, he's older. I, I thought, gosh, what am I going to do now when I, you know, let him out of the box? And so, you know, when I, when I did that, I realized, I mean, I had forgiven him on so many levels. I had walked through forgiveness. I had gone through prayer ministry, healing type prayer, you know, around the idea of not being protected and that the Lord's going to protect me. And so this, this whole thing just kind of rolled out through layers. You know, it didn't happen overnight. I wish I could say I went in. I, I went in. I got prayer. Someone said, you know, good job, you're done. And it was all different, it, but it wasn't. It was a, a revealing of my heart. It was a revealing of 
the protection levels I had put in and what was necessary and what's what's not necessary anymore and trusting the Lord at another level by opening up the door of the box and letting him out because the unknown is about to happen. You know, I'm a six on the Enneagram, so I've worked out every worst case scenario I could possibly work out. And and so with him, I had worked out all those scenarios as well. Like if I let you out of this box, you're going to come out here, you're going to say something and, you know, you're going to hurt me. And, um, and it wasn't, it's not that he hasn't hurt me. It's not that he doesn't still have his moments. We have a relationship now that we've never had before because I was willing to risk another level of forgiveness, really, and and communicate, you know, with him. He's 91 now, and on his 90th birthday, we thought, well, my stepbrother and I contacted the rest of the family and said, hey, we're going to have a barbecue at my house for his 90th birthday, if if you'd like to come. I only gave him two weeks notice because I didn't want him to think about it too long. <laughs> and my brothers are kind of scattered all over different states and far away. And it was a commitment for them. But every single one of them said yes. Every single one of my brothers decided, and their families, they brought their whole families, their wives, their kids, their grandkids. I mean, they just full on said, okay. And... Even though I had stayed in contact with him, they have never, they had not stayed in contact with him. We created this um, barbecue and they all came and they honored him. But when the end of the day, Danny said, you know, they honored him, but they really honored you. And this whole thing, the fact that he got to see them all was because you kept your love on and and you held on to your your end of the rope, really, with him. And I think a lot of us, when we have relationships, we're, we've been holding on to the end of the rope, and there's nothing happening on the other side. And we're not responsible for that other side, but we are definitely responsible for our end of the rope. And you never know what's going to happen. Things aren't perfect. Our relationship he he still has those tendencies to think only of himself and not be aware and but i my responses are different because he doesn't have control like he used to and i took him home after christmas uh, recently and he started yelling at me in the car about where where i was parking at the store and and i just got out of the truck and i helped him out with his walker and i said don't talk to me like that like you can't be like that to me. There's no reason for you to talk to me like that. And he goes, well, I didn't want to walk from this far away. I said, okay, well, you can communicate that. So I, my responses are different because I've let go of so many things that I, my trigger is just not as, as sensitive as it used to be. You know, it's not that I don't have one because I do like, I don't like being, I don't know anyone that would talk to me like that. You know, we shouldn't talk to anyone like that. Uh, no one should. But as soon as I communicate that I don't like it. It doesn't feel good. He does respond, you know, just to some of the most recent thing that happened was he was out at the house here and it was just him and I, and which is rare. We have a house full here, seven people that live here. And, but he and I were sitting around and I just got this weird thought in my head. And I said, dad, 
I want to ask you a question. And he said, what is it? I said, well, I'm not, I just want you to say, I'm not mad at you. I want you to know that I don't, I need you. I want you to tell me the truth, but there's no repercussions for it. I, I, I'm not going to be upset with you. He said, okay. And I said, I would like to know if you had an affair with my mother before you got married. I have one stepbrother that's younger than me. So he was married, you know, and he said, no, we didn't have an affair. Your mother was already divorced. We were divorced. I said, well, I mean, that timeline doesn't exactly play out. He goes, well, I said, well, my, I mean, one of my older brothers says he remembers you being at the house really early in the morning when he was a child. And he said, well, yeah, we did. We had an affair. I said, okay. He goes, well, why are you asking me? I said, I, I guess, I guess I just wanted you to, it helps me for you to just tell me what happened. And it's a long time ago. So, you know, it, it is what it is. He said, well, did you feel like that? What did that have to do with your life or whatever? I said, I, I think because of the choices that you and mom made, that you set something in motion for two families. You you guys made choices and you broke up two families. At the, and then you, you created a new version of family. And that had repercussions in everybody's life. My stepbrothers felt like they lost their dad. And my brothers and I felt like we got a, a, an angry dad. And a lot of things happened to us as kids because of the choices that you made. And we had nothing to do with it. We had, these were defining moments in our lives that we had nothing to do with. And so we had, you know, and we just had this discussion. You know, I, all of us have a story that begins right there with your decision. And we, ha- we all had to make choices along the way in our journey to get out of the pain. And he said, well, how do you think everyone was affected? I said, why? Well, I, I think a lot of my brothers numbed themselves with drugs and alcohol. Others ran away and became workaholics and, and all sorts of things happened. And you can't blame everything on you. We make our choices. But I think you put something in motion that were obstacles that we had nothing to do with. And he said, I, I have regrets about that. 91 years old. And it's the first time in all my attempts to talk to him that he said I had a regret. And I said, well, I'm really glad that you told me about it today. And everyone's got their life and they're, they're doing it, you know. But it was the weirdest thing spiritually. I felt like ancient chains is how I would describe it. Like there was these ancient chains that I had nothing to do with that were were that I was walking around with. You know, and even in our you know, I think about the world we're living in and and in racism and all this stuff that that is everybody has these experiences that are different, but I think it helps when when someone can say I hurt another person, I take responsibility even if I didn't personally do it. I think there's some of that we're doing, but these ancient chains, I think the, 
they started breaking off of me when I when I started lowering when I lowered the expectations of him him being a father so that he could win, you know, he could have a win in my life. That's when they started loosening up and maybe I started getting a key back then, you know, and when I opened the door of the the box and let him out of the box and I mean he's all those failures didn't go away. He did make he did he did still do all those things. But all people are redeemable by from the Lord and and their lives and and so and then just learning how to talk to him, learning how to set healthy boundaries with him and then getting to the point where he trusted me enough to be able to say yes. I did that. This is what I did and and I have regrets about it. So I mean, the story's not over. He's he's still alive. He's still going. He'll be ninety-two in a few months. But and I can honestly say I love him now. I call him two, three times a week. He lives in a assisted living home. We see him every couple of weeks. But there's residue of pain still. The weird, like sexual, inappropriate things that happen. Those have residue. I don't know. Maybe till we get to heaven, I, you know, I, I don't know. I wish I could pray it off, but, but I do love him. I do care about him and our lives are really completely different. Basically, it's a weird thing, but I think I just held on to my end of the rope until he was willing to pick his end up. And I think we're going to end well, he and I, you know, his end of his life is... Our relationship is completely different. That's my story. In Sherry's story, she uses the phrase, keep your love on. And before we really get started in our discussion today, when I was listening and I heard her say that, I just felt this prompting from the Holy Spirit that it was so important for all of you to hear what Keep Your Love On is. And it is a ministry that Danny, her husband, and Sherry run about relational health. And I knew it was important to ask her more about it. So I did. So we're going to give a quick clip from Sherry about Keep Your Love On, and then we're going to come back and discuss. Keep Your Love On, the whole idea of that really is I'm responsible for my side of the relationship. And so I, I don't treat you based off of you. I treat you based off what the Lord has done in me, my honor. It's not something you earn. It's something I give you and keep your love on the whole idea of communication, having a goal of connection and communicating and setting boundaries with people. Doesn't, you don't have to be mad to set a boundary. That was a big deal in my life. Like, Oh, I, I used anger as protections, learning how to just communicate, even though I can say, this is hurting me or, but I don't have to be angry to set a boundary with somebody. And there are definitely relationships that need boundaries. They absolutely, the idea of, well, I'm a Christian, so I have to forgive. So that means my walls are all broken down. That's, that's not necessarily true. There are people that need to be out in an outside circle because they can't handle being in inside. That was really my relationship with my dad for a long time. So keeping my love on is really my side of the relationship. Wow. I could sit at Sherry's feet and just listen to her, give me some advice on how to handle relationships. There were two things that just really, really stood out to me. And number one is that my love is based on what Christ did for me, not 
what others are doing for me or have not done mm-hmm. for me. That was a big thing that, that I took away from what she just said there. And then also just this concept of anger being her protection. I don't know if any of you have ever heard the saying that anger is sad's bodyguard, um, that really if somebody is angry, they're sad and anger puffs up and protects instead of, you know, voicing that sadness. So those were two things that just really I loved it spoke when she to me. said, uh, anger is my drug of choice. Yes. Yes. I was like, oh, I know some people like that. <laughs> yes. When Sherry talks in her towards the end about the ancient chains being mm-hmm. broken, that she's now in her 50s. Her dad is in his 90s. Yeah. And to think that it's never too mm-hmm. late, it really, it really stirred me at the end of her story. When we all carry these chains from our past, mm-hmm. from decisions our parents made and our grandparents made. And there are generational things that our body holds onto that we may not even be aware of. And to hear her say that those ancient chains were mm-hmm. broken just brought me such freedom and hope in the moment. It's like I even felt it myself. Yeah. Right. You know, I could right. even feel it in my own body of whatever it is that I have going on with my life of, oh, my gosh. God just brings such freedom and can release those things that you think can never be fixed. And and I got chills when you said it's never Mm. too late. Somebody needs to hear that. It's never too late to repair a relationship through forgiveness. Well, there's such hope here because it is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because Danny even pointed out to her when they all came for his birthday party (laughs) that they really honored you, Sherry, and they're honoring how you treat your father. People are paying attention to how us as believers treat other oh, people. That's a good point. And so, you know, how we're holding our end of the rope, that's the analogy that Sherry mm-hmm. used. People are paying attention to that. And I loved how she tied it into what's going on in the climate here in our country. I mean, we can honor Christ mm-hmm. by how we treat other people. Mm-hmm. It's pretty simple. Yeah. And if this stirred things in you today, we realize that this is not an easy topic to listen to. And to be honest, we we pray that something was stirred. Mm-hmm. I'm going to actually pray for you in just a minute because we are confident that when you're listening to this, the Holy Spirit is going to bring something up. But if it's something where you need help, we want to encourage you to reach out to your local church to find a local counselor. Sherry mentions the Bethel Transformation Center mm-hmm. that helped bring her healing. And you can Google that and find that. And if you don't have any of those things, please reach out to us and sure. we will be glad to help you find a place mm-hmm. where you can find healing. So I'm going to pray for all of you before we end today. Mm-hmm. Lord, I thank you so much for Sherry's story. I thank you for the power that Holy Spirit, you have given her to release anger and to learn to love and forgive from all that she's walked through. And I pray for the women that are listening today and men, Lord, that that you would just speak to their hearts, that you would bring freedom, that those ancient chains would be broken and that they would even walk into Easter as we're coming in on Easter now as a time of resurrection and freedom. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 All right. Well, thank you for listening today. And we look forward to talking to you next week. Bye.